In recent years, a series of major events has stretched the capacity of the entire global humanitarian response. Outside of the human cost, the South Asia tsunami of 2004, as well as massive earthquakes in Pakistan, Haiti and Nepal, and the 2014 Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines have all caused serious damage and have required massive investment to rebuild. But what lessons have been learned here, and where are the gaps in knowledge for the international development community? To discuss this, I'm joined by two of my colleagues here at IMC. First up is Dr. Andre Steele. He's a principal consultant here at IMC and a chartered civil engineer with global experience in the design and implementation of water and sanitation systems for rural and urban environments. He has particular experience in appropriate water supply for post-emergency communities with a focus on long-term resilience. Also joining us is Rumana Kabir, IMC's Senior Consultant of Disaster Risk Management and Climate Change Adaptation. Rumana is trained as an architect from Bangladesh and has been working in the disaster management sector for over 16 years. Currently, Rumana is leading on the production of a guide with the World Bank that aims to capture lessons from cases worldwide and how local actors and the government have been able to prepare and recover from disasters. My name is Ben Walker and you are listening to the IMC Worldwide International Development Podcast. Andre, if I could start with you, um, what is a post-disaster reconstruction program? So we all know what disasters are. They're calamities that affect communities around the world. It could be earthquakes, they could be volcanoes, tsunamis. They all have a des- devastating impact on people, on societies. And with rapid urbanization now in the world, this is only going to become more so. The traditional approach to disaster response leads with a large amount of media attention, which puts a lot of money and a lot of resource into the response. And this may last for, this may, this may hit the ground within 24, 48 hours if, we, if we're lucky. Um, international response might follow within a week, and it may lead for months, years in, time, in, in places. But that attention will wane, it will reduce. And that will happen before these communities have got back on their feet and before their return to to pre-disaster or improved pre-disaster conditions. Reconstruction is really about that process of recovering from a disaster. It's about rebuilding the infrastructure. It's about rebuilding shelter, houses. It's about re-establishing water supply systems that are not just delivering the services required for, for life, that are they're delivering the services required to, to grow and develop and improve communities. So reconstruction, in the way we're looking at it here, is about re-establishing those communication networks that people rely on for business and for social interaction. It's about re-establishing road networks. It's about re-establishing water supply networks that are sustainable, that are managed efficiently, that do not... Um, lead to water resources issue, water resource issues down the line. Specifically from my side, because I'm interested in, in that, and that's my focus, water resource management is a key issue in post-disaster reconstruction, especially with climate change, and Romana, you'll be able to uh, comment on this more with your specialism, but with climate change, a key risk now, uh, water supply that goes, reconstructing water supply 
that does not consider the sustainability of that water over the long term, um, you could end up with a situation that much more challenging down the line. So what would you say are the main challenges in recovery for societies? So it's reconstruction is a, a multifaceted um, exercise. It's, it's, an, it's an immense piece of work. Um, after the Haitian earthquake in 2010, where 250,000 people died, a third of the population of Haiti were affected, there was vast amount of infrastructure that needed to be, needed to be rebuilt. And these are challenges that in a, in a developed world um, are, are big enough and require huge numbers of stakeholders to get involved in. And we're trying to rebuild communities or cities at, a, at an accelerated rate. So just purely the logistics of, of bringing everybody to the table and understanding the, um, the, the vested interest that stakeholders have in it is, is a challenge in itself. But... This is compounded by not only the, the environment that uh, the disaster has occurred, um, the vast majority of disasters happen in, in developing world environments, which are already struggling prior to the disaster. It's potentially happening in areas of weak governance or in areas where government systems aren't viewed as, um, as trusted or um, as reliable from the outside world. And reconstruction is all about re-establishing systems. You can't ignore government systems because at the end of the day, these are going to be the, uh, the organizations, the institutions that are responsible for the long-term uh, reconstruction and development of, uh, of the country, of the society, of the community. And finance is probably the other big challenge. In emergencies, you see that there is a large spike in funding entering into uh, emergency situations, fueled a lot by media attention in, in, the, develop in the developed world, um, with commitments of from international donors, uh, from, from bilateral donors, from uh, inst uh, finan financing institutions. But as media attention wanes and as there is a, an exodus of the international efforts um, after the immediate emergency phase, there's often a lack of finance to develop, to, to reconstruct these, um, these, these communities and cities. I mean, I think Haiti, again, is a, is a good example where of the humanitarian efforts, only about 9% of the funding went through the Haitian government. The vast majority of it went through um, international actors who have largely pulled out. Um, there's, there's still international actors in there doing some very good work, but largely the international actors have pulled out and the funding has reduced as a result. And Haiti, I was there in 2015, there's a lot still left to be done there. So I might uh, come across to you, Romana. Um so disasters can disproportionately affect the poor and marginalised. Uh, could you tell us how um, the disaster recovery programs by the government or other actors could be more inclusive and involve different stakeholders? Well, I can start giving an example from Bangladesh because that's where I am from and I started my career in Bangladesh after cyclones. If you look at, go back to 1970s when we were um, 
not an independent nation. We were called East Pakistan, and we had a cyclone in the 70s where 500,000 people died. And if you compare it with the Myanmar cyclone, which happened in 2008, Cyclone Nargis, it was similar situation. So one of the big issue is the governance system. If the government is active and government is in place, then this number of deaths can be reduced. For example, over the last 40 years, after Bangladesh got independence, the Red Cross volunteers and other aid agencies worked side by side with the government, working on disaster preparedness. So the best way to make people more resilient is to make them aware of their disasters. And you see Bangladesh in the media for flood and cyclone. But most of the time, you don't see that. It happens once, you know, once in a few years. For example, the last cyclone happened in 2000, a big cyclone happened in 2007 in Cyclone Cedar, where we got the international media attention, which Andre was talking about. But regularly, the government and the people are faced with seasonal disasters. There are cyclones, there are storms, there are annual floods. So people live with disasters. And the best way to make the disaster recovery process inclusive is to make sure that people are aware and prepared. The government have systems in place to be able to inform people. And like Andre was saying, that reconstruction or recovery process can be expensive. And for a country like Bangladesh, it is a big challenge. So the best way is to make people aware and get prepared for disasters. So when you're saying something about um, making them aware, is there any other way that an area or a community can become more resilient outside of awareness? Uh, for example, if I uh, focus on shelter or housing, because when people are living in the coastal high-risk zone in Bangladesh, you can see that the houses are built very, uh, very, you know, not enough in money is invested because we are, people can't afford to build expensive strong houses. So that is a big problem because people don't have resources. So that's why the government and many institutions and IMC is also involved in building cyclone shelters. And best way to make sure that people are um, informed by media that they need to take shelter and refuse, they need to protect their assets, livestock, eh, to go to the cyclone shelter on time. And this can be the same for a developed country like the US. You have seen recently that big um, developed countries like Japan, US, they, they get um, affected by typhoon, cyclone, earthquake, tsunami. So the best way for everyone to get prepared for future disasters are to make sure there are contingency plans in place apart from thinking about reconstruction and recovery. So the main challenges in financing, Andre, are things to do with that sort of long-term reconstruction. That international actors are only in the country for a short time, I suppose, whilst there's immediate attention. Is there a way that other donors can address this issue? Yes, yes, there are alternative methods, and they need to be explored. I think I'd, I'd quite like to build on, linking to your question, I'd quite like to build on what Romana just said as well, with the um, with the awareness and uh, and preparedness. And I think if we look at um, disasters as a whole, they're, they're a cycle. Uh, a disaster happens, and we, we go through an emergency response, and we go into rec reconstruction, and then we have a period of development afterwards. And chances are, especially with the likes of, of cyclones or typhoons, there will then be another emergency because another disaster will hit and we're into a similar boat. Um, so there is a whole pre-disaster planning period that is essential and feeds directly into reconstruction as well. And this is also an opportunity to, to address the financing issues there, which is, which is why I bring it up. But we know that every year there's a cyclone season that comes through and you get 
tropical storms forming the Bay of Bengal, moving up north and often hitting Sri Lanka or India or Bangladesh or Myanmar. Yet we're in a very similar situation every year. If we look to examples such as the Caribbean, they have set up a climate resilience disaster relief fund, which is essentially, on the face of it, an insurance scheme. You have island nations paying into a facility which they then, which then enables them to access seed uh, funding post-disaster to respond. But it comes with tide. It comes with a, uh, a tide requirement to go through a process of developing uh, disaster response plans and pre-disaster um, preparation. So there is a link there between both um, finance and enhancing resilience of communities and island nations to respond to the disaster when the disaster occurs. That's an interesting model and it's slowly been developed and it's um, come to the fore uh, over the last 10 years of people as, as this issue has been recognized. Often it's been led by the big international financing institutions such as the World Bank. But I think we should recognize in parallel to these, these innovative uh, solutions we've still got the traditional funding model which in a disaster environment or rather reconstruction environment there's, a, there's this um, consideration that there's a huge amount of funding required to rebuild infrastructure. Quite rightly, rebuilding roads, bridges, water supply systems costs a lot of money. What isn't necessary is that we then channel those countries that have to rebuild these, this infrastructure towards a traditional funding model of taking out a loan to cover it because that loan comes with additional interest requirements. It comes with additional commitments to the loan, to, to, to the entity that loans the funds. Ultimately, you end up tying that nation into paying off an interest on a loan over a period of time, which then further, potentially further, restricts their ability to prepare for disasters in the future. So there is a real um, conundrum here about that post-reconstruction funding, which, which needs, needs thought. Insurance is maybe one option. Um, also, maybe re-looking re at the way that donors fund emergency response and perhaps less tying that to the delivery of specific items like so many um, tarpaulins handed out for, sh for, for shelter or so many litres of water provided in an emergency response, but looking at more using that to channel that funding into resilience in disaster response. So, for instance, um, there's some good examples out of, uh, out of the Philippines in response to, to Typhoon Haiyan, where organizations, I mean, this links again to the, to the local response, but organizations recognized that they weren't necessarily able to keep up with the level of reconstruction of housing implemented by, um, by local communities and recognized that potentially their best effort or the, the way to channel their efforts was into ensuring that houses built by communities were both resilient to future um, typhoons by supporting local builders and by providing cash grants which were tied to 
improved reconstruction. An interesting example, and the idea being that those houses are now resilient to the next typhoon that comes through. Also, I want to ask uh, you, Romana, do you have any sort of like uh, examples of successful sort of successful recovery programs that you've worked with in the past? I can uh, add up an example from Pakistan earthquake, like Andre mentioned about the funding problems and issues, but in the 20, 2005 earthquake after Kashmir um, and NWFB Northwest Frontier Province, which is called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa now, they they were they were devastated by the earthquake and 600,000 houses needed rebuilding, and the Pakistan government was very strong and decisive. After the emergency period, the first three months to or three to six months, when the international NGO was providing the life-saving um, assistance of shelter and tarpaulins and um, water and other things. Then the government came up with this strong reconstruction plan that all the money to be channeled through the government and people will get equal amount of money. All these 600,000 houses will be built using the government cash grant and that cash grant will be installed um, in three phases. So the government and the NGOs will work together to make sure that the people are building the houses according to the earthquake resistant construction standards which was developed together with all the international agency shelter and um, uh, earthquake experts and there were examples of traditional methods as well as modern houses how to, how to improve those houses so both urban and rural population got guidance on making the houses more strong to prevent future earthquakes and that was one of the good example from Pakistan I think if I jump in there as well, um, it's interesting seeing how governments do attract uh, funding and, and buy-in from the international uh, community when it comes to reconstruction. Pakistan is, is a good example. It had quite a strong government and it, which set up a dedicated unit, the, um, the ERRA, e -R -R uh, the Earthquake Reconstruction and Rehabilitation Authority. Authority, which is presented as a bit of a model as for um, for how governments can promote reconstruction. It, it's one entity which is um, mandated to to oversee reconstruction, with and they have they have the ability to control funding institutions, money coming to the country, and so on. An alternative method method is to assign that to that, um, that mandate to an existing line ministry, but then you're integrating that new demand with existing um, existing roles, existing uh, responsibilities that that organization has, and perhaps you, you're mandating it to, to people who have not got the experience of doing this sort of thing before. So that sort of high-level government management is, is really quite important in, in, this, in these situations as well, and can send a real clear message to the donors as to how you know how much they should be willing to go down one route or another and if if as in the case of Haiti the, the international uh, community decides that actually it's better to channel funds more effectively outside of government where you're then really setting up a nation to not have any ability to rebuild itself after that disaster is after the emergency phase has, has ended. But I would like to jump into Andre's um, example of Haiti. 
because there was a big problem because the government and the UN they were affected government buildings were affected so same in Indonesia after the tsunami when the governments get affected that can be really a big challenge for reconstruction Absol that's absolutely correct and one thing that donors should perhaps also um, consider which was uh, a key point that came out of the topic guide uh, is that governments do often require their needs to be addressed as well and to be effective you know those national governments need to have the relevant um, staffing resources. They, in the case of Haiti, they needed the relevant places to meet to be able to carry out their own their, their daily businesses. They need to uh, provide that financing for temporary accommodation. If you're going to um, lead to a, a sustainable reconstruction environment, those funds also need to be channeled into uh, into government systems, which has traditionally not received the level of attention and disaster response that the, the beneficiary, the, the community has. That was Dr. Andre Steele and Rumana Kabir discussing the recent developments in post-disaster reconstruction programs. Andre was a co-author of a recent topic guide alongside Tony Lloyd-Jones and Ian Davis on this very subject. If you want to read it, and I rec really recommend that you do, please head to evidenceondemand.info and have a look under topic guides. We will be revisiting this topic of disaster recovery and reconstruction in the coming weeks from a more on the ground perspective as IMC works to capture lessons from local actors and communities on best practice. You can find more podcasts from us on our website at www.imcworldwide.com or check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com slash imc hyphen worldwide thanks for listening